good morning to you. Time for the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. Uh, we've got a bit of excitement here in the studio for you today. Things that go bang, things that get hot, and a look at the future of humanity, if that's not an interesting mix of things. We visited the um, Geoscience Australia a couple of years ago, and we got to talk to some interesting people, and we talked about tsunamis and volcanoes so he's okay here i am at uh, geosciences australia and i'm interviewing dr barry drummond who's the leader of the geo monitoring group at geosciences australia and uh tsunamis being one of the things but a whole range of things that you're involved with barry can you tell us what does the earth monitoring group do well we monitor lots of uh, hazards around the world uh, tsunamis obviously uh, earthquakes nuclear tests uh, changes in the Earth's magnetic field uh, and uh, changes in the shape of the Earth. We, we also run the, the National Geodetic Program here, which is all about changes in the shape of the Earth, so things like your car navigation systems will, will work. The Earth changes its shape? I know it happens on a geological timescale, but, <laughs> but uh, what do you mean? Uh, the Earth's very dynamic, actually. It's changing all the time, and we can monitor changes to the order of millimetres uh, per year in the shape of the Earth. Ah, now, actually, I've heard that the Earth bulges with the tide forces of the Moon. Is that right? Yes, and the Sun and the other planets. It's, um, it's constantly shifting. Here in Canberra, your feet are probably going up and down 30 centimetres a day, but it happens so slowly you don't uh, feel it. 30 centimetres? Wow, that's a lot. How do you know it's 30 centimetres? <laughs> because we've got things that measure it. That's how we know. <laughs> well, what sort of things are they? Well, things like uh, GPS instruments for a start. Um, people think of GPS are things that go in cars. But, of course, if you take the highly sophisticated scientific versions that are very sensitive, then uh, you can measure all sorts of things with them. Wow, that's amazing. And what are the, some of the effects of the Earth, of this regular movement of 30? Is it is a periodic 30 centimetres? It yes, it's, 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 it's like an ocean tide. It goes up and down and up and down. And, of course, the Earth's um, designed to handle that. Being pretty old, you know, the Earth, it's four and a half billion years old. It's, it's quite used to going up and down. <laughs> oh, wow, I'm just hanging onto my chair now because I'm feeling slightly nervous. But another thing you do that's getting a lot of public attention, uh, especially with the tragic events around the Indonesian waters uh, a few years ago, is uh, tsunamis. You have a role with that. Yes, and we, we operate uh, one node of the Australian Tsunami Warning Centre. The other node is in Melbourne, and I'll explain how the two bits work. But the essential cause of tsunamis goes right back again to that dynamic earth the earth's changing shape the lithospheric plates on the surface of the earth are moving where they grind together they cause earthquakes now on the way in you showed me a really surprising map and you pointed to some inland spots on the continents and you said see that there have been tsunamis inland what was that about well anything that will displace a column of water can cause a tsunami so tsunamis we think of um, after the Indian Ocean tsunami of 2004, we think of being in the ocean, of course, but you can get them in lakes and rivers. So, for example, in the New Madrid earthquakes in, in the US back in the 1800s, um, that caused tsunamis in the Mississippi River. And there's, there's evidence of tsunamis in lakes in, uh, in uh, Central Asia and, and so on. And they can be quite nasty things. Really? So in a river, what would a tsunami look like? Is it just uh, like a large wave running down the length of the river or, or what? 
Yeah, they don't actually look a bit like waves. They they tend to be essentially a change in the height of the water, and it's where the edge of that um, occurs is where things get nasty because a tsunami is not like a wind wave that you see on the ocean uh, at the beaches. A tsunami is much longer wavelength than that. They can be tens and hundreds of kilometres long from from the peak to the to the trough, and they travel very fast. In, in deep water they can travel at 800 kilometres an hour when they hit water that's shallower the front of the wave slows down but the back being hundreds of kilometres away is still in deep water and it's travelling fast so it starts to catch up with the front of the wave and the water's got to go somewhere and the only place it can go is up and that's where they pile up as they come to the beach. So something that's only 30 centimetres high in the deep ocean can get to metres high at the beach. And when I said they slowed down, they slowed down from 800 kilometres an hour down to maybe 50 or 60 kilometres an hour. Well, that's a big slowdown, but a 50 to 60 kilometre per hour wall of water coming at you is pretty fearsome sight. Incredibly powerful, huge amounts of energy, huge amounts of mass in the water and of course when that hits the the beach that can be quite destructive as we saw in in 2004. Uh, I'm reminded of pictures I've seen, aerial pictures of a train that's hit something and gone off the tracks and you can see the back of the train's caught up with the front of the train and it's made this big snaking pattern uh, around the tracks and it's pretty devastating obviously if you're on the train Mm -hmm. but a a wave in the water, now is that a um, a compression wave is it? I mean, the mechanics of a wave are uh, a little hard to get your head around. Can you describe it for us? Oh, now you're getting into some hard physics, and I'm not sure I can do that over the radio. Um, yeah, let me just say that they're they're not a wind wave that you see on the beach. They're a wave which affects the entire column of the water, and so they are impacted by basically the shape of the bottom of the of the ocean so even in the deepest ocean which can be four to six thousand meters deep they're still they're still seeing the bottom and being affected by it so the physics is pretty hard and um uh and then what happens is they go from deep water into the shallow water the whole physics changes and you've got to get into what we call shallow water equations and and that's a whole new area of physics so it's very hard to predict from the actual earthquake to um, what the impact will be at the beach and then on the land we've got people who can do all of those those things so here we've got a program which looks at um, working out what the scenarios would be if a tsunami happened off java how that would impact communities in australia uh, and that goes down to to, to estimating you know, the, the water coming across the ocean land interface across the land um, impacts on buildings. They can estimate you know, water speed and and uh, water height and depth, and then applying engineering principles, work out what that would do to buildings. And once you get into that and look at what the impacts on buildings would be, you can consider what would happen if the tsunami arrived at night time compared to daytime when people were asleep. Uh, and wouldn't necessarily get a message, and, and uh, so so you're you're modelling the effects of what happens when a tsunami hits a coastal region. That must be pretty complicated because you've got all the folds of the bays and the reefs and the, and the so on. Uh, are we able to do that with any kind of confidence? 
Y yes, we are now. In fact, the people here who've developed uh, with the ANU have developed some code that will do that on the computers. You need a pretty good computer to run them on. Um, but that code has now been validated against um, uh, both uh, tank tests, looking at tsunamis within tanks, um, you know, artificially created ones, experimental ones, and also going to places like Thailand and looking at what the tsunami did there and seeing if the code will actually reproduce that, and it does. So Now, I, I write a column for the Canberra Times called the Ask Fuzzy column, yeah. and I've got one for you now which uh, uh, about waves, and that is where does the wa excess water in a wave come from? If It looks like there's more water at the peak of the wave than there is in the trough. Where does the water in the peak come from? Where did the water in the trough go to? Well, it, there's no new water. It's all the same amount of water. If you, um, It doesn't matter whether it's a tsunami or a wind wave. Um, you're taking a, a, a puddle of water, which is would, in the absence of any external force, would be perfectly flat. Well, actually, it'd be a sphere, wouldn't it, on the Earth? Uh, and you're just creating ripples in it. So... You, you may you may think there's more in the in the in the peak than there is in the trough, but it's all got to average out. So, is it that the water bunches up as the trough comes and and moves apart? As it, it's not actually a body of water rolling across the water, is it? It's across the surface. It's it's like them all bunching up in the peak and then borrowing water from the from the trough. Is that kind of a way of thinking about kind it? Kind of, yeah. If you if you look at the position of a cork. In, in water as waves go by the the cork will move forward and up and then down and back so it'll it'll go in a kind of a circular motion so water's conserved now that, there's actually a history of tsunamis in australia isn't there because we tend to think of that as being something that happens elsewhere but i believe there is evidence around the coast of australia of tsunamis in geological time or past oh absolutely um there's uh, there's plenty of evidence in the geological record of uh, tsunamis having come to Australia, uh, both the east coast and the west coast. But even in historic times, um, there are documented records of uh, of the tsunami generated by Krakatoa on uh, some some of the harbours and bays in Western Australia. Uh, the 1960 Chile earthquake and tsunami, the tsunami crossed the ocean and, and killed people in Hawaii and Japan, but it caused um, it caused uh, what we call the sosh, it's a sloshing around in the harbour in Sydney. Um, so they do get here from South uh, South America, and that's that's recorded. So w what sort of evidence do we see of that now? Oh, something as small as that, you wouldn't see any evidence. But in the of the big ones, which which uh, come in and inundate the coastline, what you're tending to look for is uh, is all the sand that these things carry with them. They they come with such terrific force that they'll bring in uh, sediments and shells and little microfossils from out on the continental shelf and dump them on the shore. Uh, usually in in in, dune, in in swamps and things behind the frontal dunes, so you can look for them there. In other places, they will actually come in and then as they run out, back out to sea, which, I mean, the water has to go somewhere and it goes downhill, it runs off the land back into the ocean. Uh, that'll cause quite a lot of scouring, and you can see signs of that in places too. So if you had this inundation, how would you distinguish it from, say, a really heavy rain event? 
Um, the big the big challenge is not so much the rain event, what happens on shore and runs out to sea. The big challenge is to separate out the effects of the tsunami coming on shore from the effects of, say, a storm surge, which is the, the rise in the ocean height that you get as a consequence of um, cyclones and, and, and you know, major, really serious storms that have a big change in the um, atmospheric pressure. And that causes the level of the sea to rise. It's called storm surge. As an example, a storm surge with um, New Orleans, I think, was of the order of seven metres. So that's the, what the sea level rose as that storm came across the. Which is why they had trouble with the levee banks, of course, because the sea just got too high. And there we are talking to Dr. Barry Drummond from Geoscience Australia here on Fuzzy Logic and. Uh, today's Blues Days are going to play you a bit of blues music. I found it in my drawer. And when we come back, we're going to talk more Geoscience Australia and volcanoes this time. Oh, 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 how funky is that? A bit of blues there for you here on Fuzzy Logic. Very cool music. Let's talk volcanoes now. Back to Geoscience Australia. Okay, and I'm interviewing Dr. Adele Beer, a volcanologist here at Geosciences Australia. And welcome to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> now, if this is a really obvious question, I'm going to ask anyway, what does a volcanologist do? <laughs> okay. Um, well, a volcanologist actually studies volcanoes, how they erupt, um, where they're currently erupting, and hopefully try to work on predicting where they might erupt in the future. So there's lots of different types of volcano, aren't there? Can you tell us about some of those? Yeah, there are quite a few different kinds of volcanoes. Um, broadly, there's two categories. We have the um, the mildly explosive or effusive volcanoes, which just sort of ooze volcanic lava all over the surface of the Earth. And then we also have a lot of um, explosive volcanoes. So those kinds um, are your typical conical-shaped volcano that we see in the movies um, they're called strata volcanoes and there are also um, more even more explosive ones that i've worked on in the past they're called calderas and um and we have quite a few of those in our in our region in new zealand and in indonesia so the, the term caldera comes from the big hole they leave in the ground? Is that yeah, right? it's shaped like a cauldron. So instead of the volcano um, exploding outwards like you see on a lot of um, media footage, these types of volcanoes tend to implode on themselves and create a great depression in the ground and they fill up with water over time. So they look like lakes most of the time. Ah, now we have a pretty fine example down in Mount Gambia in South Australia, don't we? We do. That's um, too small to be classified a caldera. It's just a crater, um, but it's a similar thing, yes. Ah, and so a lot of destructive power. What was the one at Mount Helens? Yeah, Mount St. Helens, yeah. In the um, US, what was that? Yeah, that one erupted in 1980. That was a strata volcano, um, so it was an explosive volcano. It looked like a, your classic conical-shaped volcano. The only thing that was a bit strange about that eruption was that instead of exploding upwards, it exploded sideways, and that was something that we'd never seen before. Now, a friend of mine lives on a small property down in rural Victoria, and he lives on a scoria cone. So, and we've also mentioned Mount Gambia. So, Australia does have a bit of a history with volcanoes, but not a lot at the moment. Well, what, tell us a little bit about the volcanoes 
in Australia. Mm-hmm. Well, particularly, like you mentioned, Western Victoria is a, a large volcanic district. Um, there was quite a lot of volcanic activity there um, between four and five or even up to 12,000 years ago. Um, we had uh, Mount Gambia and Mount Shank, which is the cone which is quite close to Mount Gambia. They were the last eruptions to occur in, uh, in that sort of um, volcanic province. And um, over time, we had a lot of um, eruptions that involved water in Western Victoria. So I guess you could say that probably four to 5,000 years ago, Western Victoria would have looked a lot like what North Island and New Zealand looks like today. Oh, great for making uh, movies. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Mordor and Lord of the Rings, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yep. uh, fun stuff. But now what I noticed is this place in Victoria is the, the scoria cones or the remnants of the volcanoes are in a line. Mm-hmm. So why is that? Yeah, it's a, it's a common style of eruption. Um, it's called a fissure eruption. So basically it's when the, the crust unzips itself and um, you get a line of magma that's coming up along, a, um, along a, a fracture system in the crust and it's usually a straight line. And what happens is as the magma travels along that fracture, it pops up at the surface and creates a scoria cone and then when the magma moves on um, further down the fracture usually in response to movement of the um, hotspot that's generating the volcanic activity underneath Western Victoria um, then the next scoria cone pops up a bit further down from the previous one. So they follow often I think in Western Victoria a north-south trend um, as the as the big hotspot moved southwards. Now what's the likelihood, do you think, of a volcanic eruption on mainland Australia, given that's a long time since we've had one here? Yeah, most of the volcanic eruptions that we've had on the mainland have been hotspot um, volcanism. That basically means that there's a big pool of magma in the Earth's mantle, and as the Australian continent moved over that um, pool of magma, it generated some volcanism. Um, but now that Australia's moved on from that location, we don't actually have any active hotspots generating volcanism underneath Australia. And that's what we need in order to get volcanoes in Australia, because we don't have those active plate margins that a lot of the other countries have for generating volcanoes. So it's very unlikely that we would get any volcanic activity in the near future in Australia. Oh, right, because there's something about volcanoes that's really exciting. And I guess, is that what dream brings you to the, you know, these scenes of the great spurts of lava and ash and clouds and all the stuff going? Is that the exciting bit that really brings you into it? Absolutely. I love the whole, um, the whole idea of um, the new parts of the planet being created as you watch it. So especially with those big lava eruptions and especially the ones at sea when you see new islands created, for example. It's fantastic. Yeah. Now, have you been up close to one, like around uh, the Hawaiian Islands? You can get right up and you can see some of the actual yes. hot lava um, leaking to the surface? Yes, I have seen um, some uh, lava eruptions in Hawaii, um, but the most spectacular eruptions I've seen are the more uh, dark eruptions, so the big explosive ones like Mount St Helens, um, and I've seen um, some of that in um, South America and in um, a little bit in Italy. Ah, yeah. so you've actually been up close to these things? Yeah, quite close to one in, um, in Italy at the Aeolian Islands, uh, Mount Stromboli, as that one's erupting. You can get quite close to the, um, to the crater sorry, rim of that one. And what, what's it like to look, you know, to be this close to one? It's incredible. It's very loud and it's, um, yeah, it's quite, 
quite amazing. I mean, I just love it. I think a lot of people get quite scared being very close to an active volcano, but I just, I was in awe of the whole thing. I was just amazed. I couldn't keep, I just kept saying, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. <laughs> I thought it was amazing. Well, and so did you have little bits of rock sort of flying up into the air and landing? Well, I mean, I presume you weren't that close. No, to no, it. we weren't that close. And, and I guess the important thing is to go, when you're going up to one of these active volcanoes, to go with a guide who, um, who knows how the volcano erupts and also what the wind conditions are doing on the day to make sure that you're in the safest possible position. So it's very important to heed all the local warnings when climbing active volcanoes. Okay, so what what are the hazards in particular? I mean, we've, flying rocks is one. Yeah, definitely flying rocks, ballistics is one um, major, major hazard and one that causes a lot of deaths in places like Vanuatu every year. Um, other dangers are the ones, sometimes the ones you can't see, there's a lot of gases that are emitted from active volcanoes, um, particularly carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide. Sometimes they pool in, um, in valleys surrounding the volcano, so you walk down into a valley and then suddenly there's no oxygen and you have to walk back up out of it again. So you have to be really careful and make sure you're carrying a gas mask all the time so that if you find that you can't breathe very well, you've got a, a mask in place. Uh-huh. So sulfur dioxide is also another gas that you have to worry about. Ah, now I have a friend who's in an Indonesia, at Indonesia at the moment, and she said she walked up the stream on the side of a volcano, and it really smelt bad. I mean. <laughs> Is the smell something you particularly notice around a volcano? The smell that you usually smell when you're on an active volcano is a rotten egg sort of smell, and that's the sulphur dioxide. Um, That just basically means that there's active fumaroles nearby. You'll probably see a lot of yellow on the ground where sulphur crystals are forming. Um, It's a really bad smell. It won't um, harm you. It's just that the actual smell itself is very... It's, it's not so much the smell as the gas that actually dries your throat really quickly and can sort of take your breath away if you're not um, watching for it. I think we just heard a volcano go on outside the room. <laughs> there was loud, a loud bang. Well, they've got it all laid on here at Geosciences <laughs> Australia, live volcanoes. <laughs> um, now, predicting volcanoes, you mentioned predicting it. It must be a fairly difficult thing. How good are we at predicting uh, volcanic eruptions? It's still a very, very difficult thing to do. Um, In terms of predicting eruptions, um, one of the main things that volcanologists look for is magma on the move. And so we set up a lot of um, seismometers on the flanks of active volcanoes, particularly in places like Indonesia. And uh, basically those seismometers register when magma is moving through the crust. Sometimes it's a movement of magma, sometimes it's a movement of water, so we have to be sort of careful of what kind of signal um, we're getting back. And then volcanologists um, make the decision on whether or not to put out a warning based on what the seismometers are telling them. And usually they're able to get a few hours of warning before a major eruption begins. And when one of these things goes off near a settlement of some sort, uh, there's all sorts of things that go on. Can you tell me about some of those, like around uh, Naples, for example, when Vesuvius decides it's had enough and goes again? Uh, I presume it varies a lot depending on the, vo- the, the type of volcano. In fact, there was one in uh, Papua New Guinea a few years ago, wasn't there, mm-hmm. that, uh, went, that went up? Yeah, yeah, Rabal um, erupted in 1994. It was quite a large eruption and destroyed most of the town of Rabal. Um, what usually happens when an eruption begins, they usually evacuate. Um, different countries have different um, policies on how far away from the volcano has to be evacuated, of course, depending on the size of the eruption as well. But it's usually six to eight kilometres. And in places like Indonesia and, and Papua New Guinea, population density is quite high, so that could be you know, thousands, if not millions of people um, evacuated in an eight-kilometre radius. Um, with Naples, that's another megacity, quite a lot of people living in and around the slopes of Vesuvius, quite a lot of people living on the volcano itself. Um, a, a lot of the people that I know who are 
responsible for evacuating Naples have found that it's quite difficult because of the, just the density of the city and the bad road networks and you know, the inability to move people around. So they really have to think outside the square in Naples when it comes to Vesuvius erupting in the future. Yeah, that's quite a terrifying thought. All those people, and a lot of illegal development, I believe, going up the side of the mountain there. Mm. How much warning might we... Would it, I presume it starts to grumble and moan and complain a bit before it finally goes? Yeah, so when, you, when, you, when, when it's registering on the seismometers, it's a lot of ground shaking associated with that. So people will be feeling the shaking in the ground and there'll be some warning, maybe some, some steam and some um, you know, ash, initial ash being expelled from the column as it's erupting but usually there's enough time to to evacuate um, people from the slopes particularly from the slopes and that sort of immediate red zone that really bad hazard zone around the volcano usually within sort of two to six k's and, and real estate prices plummet <laughs> I, I have i have read this story about like, i think it was an italian volcano i forget which one it was etna or someone i can't remember but the villagers had this um, lava flow coming down the side of the mountain and they went up the side and they built some kind of barrier and then they started pushing it down and went towards another village. And so there was this big argument yes. between them. Yes, that was in Iceland. Yeah, a big uh, lava eruption in Iceland. And they actually successfully managed to, to build a barricade to save the wharf, which is the main economic centre of the of the town. So everybody really needed to save that area to, in order to preserve their livelihoods. So Now, in Australia, we actually do have some active volcanoes, don't we? But not on the mainland. That's correct, yeah. We have uh, two active volcanoes. We have Heron Island, which is um, part of our Antarctic Territory, so down in the Southern Ocean. Uh, that's an active volcano. It's one of the world's um, only active um, phonolite volcanoes, so it's quite famous. Um, I don't think we're actually allowed to go there without special permission from the Australian Government. It's not a, a site that people are allowed to just walk around on. It's a big wildlife sort of area as well. Um, and another area that we have um, active volcanoes is the Macquarie Islands, which is Southern Ocean as well, between New Zealand and Antarctica. Yeah, yeah, overrun with uh, rabbits. I wonder how the eradication program is going down there. I've actually, <laughs> I have interviewed uh, a lady who's involved with the eradication of cats, rats, and I can't remember what else from there. Eating oh, wow. all, eating all the vegetation off the top. Of yeah. It, yeah. Um, now you mentioned land being formed. Now I believe the Krakatoa is actually still growing and it's appeared over the uh, surface of the ocean again. Absolutely. I was uh, I was just at Krakatoa about three months ago and um, we took a boat out to the to Anak Krakatoa, which means child of Krakatoa, which is currently growing in the um, in the old caldera created by Krakatoa when it erupted in 1883. I believe it um, first breached the um, surface of the ocean about 60 years ago and it's been growing a, a cone, a scoria cone, ever since and that cone's something like 500 metres high at the moment. And still 500 metres? Already? Yep, yep, already, yeah. It's a massive cone. Um, it's gone straight up really quickly. Um, there was the last eruption was a um, very big eruption in April this year and it's continuously smoking and, and, and creating um, new land. So just pushing outwards. some seriously active uh, terrain underneath the, uh, the ocean there or you know, on the volcano itself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's definitely. Uh, I'd say there's definitely always been um, a volcano in that location for what, many, so it, many, many years. So a, a cycle of it grows, goes yep. bang, yep. grows, it goes bang again. Yep. Okay. So when it goes bang the next time. Do we think it'll be as big as the last one? Because it was pretty seriously large, wasn't it? It was a really big eruption in 1883. Mm. It was two. It was sorry, three volcanoes joined together at the site. So um, there was Krakatoa and two other um, stratovolcanoes that were sort of wedged up next to it, um, and they all went 
very explosive and generated a large tsunami. Um, that size, it's quite a large eruption. It's not common. It has a long um, uh, cycle of inactivity before it'll happen again. But um, these volcanoes tend to tend to follow similar patterns to the ones that they have in the past. Oh, it's just uh, a very mildly explosive island growing area at the moment spectacular to watch okay well and the, well, the population is vastly greater than it was back in 1888 so um, the effects of it will be uh, probably far more serious when it eventually does go mm. but another one that I've heard about is uh, Canary Islands mm. now I'm not sure it's actually an active volcano but there is a big size, the side of the mountain there, if it slides off into the ocean, it's going to make a, a big wave. Yeah, there's um, the island of Tenerife, which is a very active volcanic island in the Canary Islands. Um, the big volcano that sits there is called Teddy, and it has had a really big landslide history. Um, and often, big, yeah, big slabs of the um, side of the edifice itself can slide into the ocean, and that sort of thing can generate tsunamis. It has, you know, it's definitely something that's definitely a hazard that I'm, I'm sure the um, Spanish government are looking at. <laughs> well, and the American government, because yeah. it's, it's uh, the east coast of the US faces uh, the Tenerife, so yeah, of it would go clean across the Atlantic Ocean, and I've heard there would be like 100 metre high, uh, you know, well, it's, it's all yeah. suppositions to how bad it would be. Yep. Okay, well, uh, Dr Adele Beer, volcanologist at Geosciences Australia, thank you for talking to Fuzzy Logic. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, and there we were out at Geoscience Australia, and Fuzzy Logic will be back there again in August for their open day, which is always a great blast. And speaking of blasts, uh, Dr Beer there was talking about some fairly disastrous scenarios imagine when Krakatoa goes off the next time round the population around Indonesia is what over 200 million I think and if that thing goes really off in a big way then it's going to do some serious damage and then of course we were talking about the island of Tenerife and if the side of the mountain slides off as a result there of volcanic activity then it's going to generate a tsunami that travels clear across the Atlantic Ocean to the east coast of the United States and the consequences of that are pretty serious. But it may never happen, or it may not happen in our lifetime, so not our problem. Which brings me to critical thinking. Now, a couple of weeks ago we had uh, a friend of Fuzzy Logic, uh, Merrin McKinnon, who's from the Centre for the Public Awareness of Science, and we were discussing critical thinking and she sent me a survey on critical thinking and it's on our Facebook page. Go to Fuzzy Logic Facebook page and uh, we'd love you to fill out that survey form and, well, we'll see what happens. I will look forward to getting the results from Merrin as to what that means and how that's interpreted. Now, also on our Fuzzy, Book pa uh, Fuzzy Logic Facebook page, Dr. Mikio Kaku is a very eccentric, big-thinking, big-talking scientist who talks about the Big Bang, string theory, the nature of consciousness, the future of technology, and so on. And a former Fuzzy Logic presenter, Pallavi, sent us a link to an interview she recorded with him for SBS Radio. I recommend having a listen to that. It's really quite entertaining, and he doesn't hold back from the big questions all right i think a bit more blues music if you're feeling suitably cheered today on this beautiful sunny sunday 
and when we come back we're going to talk about the future of humanity at the from some interviews that we recorded at the Fenner conference uh, meanwhile a bit more blues a bit more blues for you. I hope you're not feeling blue because it's a beautiful sunny Sunday or at least if you're not listening to the repeat which is on some crazy hour Monday morning here on Fuzzy Logic 2 X. and from one big topic to another we're going to discuss now the future of humanity and here's an interview I recorded not long ago at the Fenner conference. Okay, now I'm interviewing uh, Dr. Simon Michaud, who is a consultant in the mining industry and focusing particularly on data and trend analysis. Uh, hi, Simon, and uh, welcome. Hello. <laughs> now, if I look around the room, I can see bricks, there's furniture, there's computer equipment and all these kinds of stuff. And these are the product of our industrial system. And all of these come ultimately, or many of them come from mining and energy. Yes, that's correct. Is, is that right? Yes, that's correct. So w what's your take on all of these things? Well, uh, mining is uh, exploitation of a natural resource, and we're mining out all the high-grade deposits over time. And what we are left with is the low-grade, hard-to-work deposits, increasingly challenging postcodes. Right, so it's we're having to do more and more work to get the same metal out of the ground. We're consuming more energy to do so. At the same time, our energy resources, which are also non-renewable natural resources, are depleting. And our rates of production for things like oil, gas and coal either have peaked and will decline or will do so soon, in the next couple of years. And what will happen is when energy peaks and declines is our ability to mine raw materials out of the ground will also peak and decline. So our industrial network that makes all the stuff that we are accustomed to as you look around the room here is intimately dependent on not only the energy inputs to it but also a supply of raw materials. Okay, so let's go back to first principle for a moment because you and I, we talk about energy and uh, probably know intuitively what that means. But w w take me to, say, an example of uh, where energy is used from a mining... Hey, look, I'm holding a pen in my hand. Yeah. Let, let's talk about where the energy would have come from in the production of that pen. Okay, all right. This, this pen is made of plastic and it's got a metal clip on it and it's got, like, an, an inkwell in it. All right. All the raw materials from this, for example, plastic. Plastic's made from uh, as a petrochemical output. You've got to extract the petroleum out of the ground, oil out of the ground, refine it into petroleum, right? And then you've got to refine that petroleum into plastic. You've then got to shape that plastic into this pen. The metal, let's say, let's let, let steel. You've got to go to the iron ore deposit, dig it up out of the ground, all of which costs energy. You've then got to transport it using energy to a smelter. And you've then got to smelt that iron ore into pig iron. That pig iron is then refined into, into mild steel and steel. Right? That steel is then sent to a factory. More energy. 
is expended to transform that steel, machine it into this little clip that sits on the end of the pen. You've then got to assemble the bits of the plastic and the steel and the inks inside into this pen. You've then got to transport the pen from the factory where it was made to the warehouse. More energy again. And then you take it from the warehouse to, say, the department store or the supermarket. More energy again. You then go and buy said pen by getting in your car, more energy, driving to the supermarket and selecting your product and paying for it. So by the time you've actually got this pen in your hand, many, many, many steps have, have gone through to make it from, uh, from the raw materials and the exploitation of those raw materials through energy use to the, uh, uh, from its point of genesis to the point where you're actually holding it. Wow, that, that's uh, amazing, and mm. it's such a complicated thing. And we, we take it for granted, don't we, because I can just go down to the supermarket and pull on the shelf, and there's the pen, and I just stick, mm. chuck a couple of dollars on the counter, and, and it's now mine. Is this, do you think, really an invisible thing? It's almost like a success of our civilization, our industrial civilization that... We can do this and not even know that it's happening underneath. Oh yes, yes, absolutely. And the, the the other part that you didn't didn't mention, it's very easy just to throw it away and buy another pen without a second thought, right? And you think, well, where does all this rubbish go? Now. The modern society, we take so many things for granted, like the ability to light our homes. Right? If you were to go back, say, 500 years ago and say medieval Europe, their uh, uh, energy return on energy invested for their whole society was around one and a half to one. It was quite low, whereas our petroleum society ranges anywhere from 20 to 1 to 10 to 1, as we are now. And 100 years ago, it was 100 to 1. So for every unit of energy we use to extract that energy source, we got 100 times that in return, which, which was like a, um, a, a good one is, is uh, the petrol in our car. Right. If you were to fill up your car with a, with a litre of petrol and if you were to drive it out till the car runs out of petrol, turn it around and you get out of the car and you push the car back to where you started from. Right. That translates to about 130 man hours. Right. So one litre of petrol, which is, what, $1.50, uh, translates to 130 hours of your hard labour. Right, so if you, if you were to sort of pay minimum wage, say $15 an hour, that, you know, we're talking like $2,000 a litre. Ah, ah, so now are we losing the, uh, the, the benefit of the really cheap harvestable energy? Yes. Well, what's happening is the easy-to-get-hold-of energy has all been harvested in all resources. Oil, gas, coal, potable water, arable land, uh, sulphur to make fertiliser. We're consuming all of these resources in ways where we've gotten through all the easy-to-get, easy-to-process resources. And now, while we're absolutely dependent on these things, we're getting to the harder-to-work, harder-to-to exploit resources and we don't seem to realise what we've lost. Yeah, so when people say, oh, we've got plenty of oil, look at all those tar sands in Canada. Well, yeah. What's the problem with those? Okay, tar sands has an energy return and energy invest about five to one. Uh, or, or uh, no, no, as low as three to one, sorry. Whereas conventional oil is around 18 to one to 12 to one, depending on the project. It's much, much less efficient. Then you have the devastating environmental concerns associated with that operation. Right? Now, what tar sands and oil sands have actually done is put the push the peak of oil production back six or seven years. Peak oil in its, in its conventional form peaked in 2006. That's now fairly well accepted. But now we're exploiting tar sands to make up production demands. Right? But the total of peak oil, conventional and unconventional together, is around 2012 to 2013, around now. 
Uh, and that's according to the latest report from the Energy Watch Group. And, and so what's going to happen as we pass the point of peak oil? Uh, this is actually... What it means we haven't run out of oil. is there's, there's still lots of oil left in the ground, but the rate of production now declines. So now we have an economic issue of a supply versus demand gap, mm. right? That causes all sorts of problems. So... What that means is the system we call economics will then spiral out of control because oil is our primary energy source and it allows us to do work, right, to, 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 to manufacture all this stuff from raw materials. If we can't access that energy anymore, how do we decide who gets the stuff? And so we're talking about an economic problem where the prices will be forced up through scarcity. So why do you think it is that this seems is not just an elephant, it's mm. a brontosaurus yes. in, in the room? Why, why do you think it... <laughs> I mean, if it's a problem of this mm. scale, why is there such inaction? Why, why are we so slow to respond? Uh, President Bush did famously refer to Americans being addicted to oil, mm -hmm. but then what, what happened? They're still addicted to oil. Uh, what's happening is that these problems are so large and they have no real solution to them. And, and, and for that reason, the implications are so difficult that as a collective whole, we're going through cognitive dissonance. We, we, we don't want to know. On the other hand, for the last 10 years, how many military engagements around the world could be called resource wars? where there are actually wars are being fought in small countries, comparatively smaller countries, with resources like oil or fossilised water or uh, gold reserves or copper reserves. The next major military engagement could be around Central Asia, the stands. Right? Uh, so much effort has been pushed into that area. So the world around us is actually changing. It's becoming less stable. Yet there's lots of people telling us it's all right. Stay at your post, use your credit card, work, keep working, consume. But as a whole, we are approaching a transition point where we will transform as a society into an era of scarcity. Do, do we have alternatives? What about biofuels and mm -hmm. algae and uh, secondary cellulose fermentation and methanol, ethanol and all those things? Hydrogen. Mm -hmm. They are all good ideas and they have practical limits. Uh, again, we're back to energy return and energy invested. Biofuels has a, a ratio of about 1.3 to 1. right? And also the problem with biofuels is it, it puts in direct competition for food. And we are now looking at food shortages as well. Right, so the idea of biofuels as a replacement fuel for oil is not going to work. That being said, it does have its place in small applications. So we're back to the idea of transformation. Uh, hydrogen, there's not enough calorific energy in hydrogen to be a replacement for oil, but again, if you can get, get past some of the engineering problems, it does have its place. But hydrogen is an energy carrier, isn't it? Not, a, not an energy source, so we have to produce it in the first place, yes, don't we? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. And, and once you have the hydrogen, you've got to then use it in some sort of mechanical application. Uh, it can be done, like nat natural gas, but there are certain engineering limits uh, that we have not been able to overcome yet. Do, do you have a view on nuclear? I do. I don't believe it's viable. It has a number of Achilles heels. First of all, you're talking in terms of for our nuclear fleet to viable to replace fossil fuels, it's got to multiply 12 to 13 times in size. Now, the other problem with, with, with nuclear is someone's got to build all these reactors and someone's got to pay for them and then maintain them. Nuclear uh, fuel, or uranium, is a non-renewable resource just like anything else. If we did exploit all those reserves and turn them into energy, it might buy us 50 or 60 years. 
Now, at the end of that 50 or 60 years, the nuclear fuel rods will have to be, explore, uh, have to be stored because they're hot and they're radioactive and they need to be in powered facilities to keep them cool. So when nuclear power peaks and declines, oil, gas and coal and all our conventional energy resources will have already peaked and declined and will not be in a position to generate enough power to supply the power to keep those reactors... Uh, do, you, do you mean those things become net energy users at this yeah. point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so something, has to, something has to use the energy to keep those spent nuclear fuel rods cool for 10 to 20 years after they've been used. So as nuclear goes offline due to we don't have the uranium to process them anymore, we have to prevent a, an environmental catastrophe by keeping the spent fuel oh, rods Oh dear cool. Simon, now, now I'm feeling quite depressed and I'm asking each of my Scotch. guests <laughs> Sorry? Have a pint of whiskey <laughs> A pint of whiskey? It sorts all sorts of problems <laughs> Well I'm thinking of a pint of something uh, very soon but uh, look I'm asking each of my guests today to end on an optimistic or a, no, do, do you have one for me? I do uh, While the era in front of us is extraordinarily trying and challenging as a species, we've got to mature and get past this idea that we've got to consume every uh, non-renewable resource in sight. We've got to mature and learn the lesson, how do we interact with our environment in a sustainable fashion? And we're in a better position to do that now than ever before because rates of education of both genders has never been higher. Right. So if we must go through something like this, now is a better time to do it than, say, 100 years ago. Well, here's hoping, and thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Pint of whiskey. <laughs> Pint of whiskey. One on the way. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, but not while I'm on air, because you can't operate a complicated studio after having drunk a pint of whiskey, I can tell you. In fact, you probably can't operate anything at all. That was Dr. Michael Lardelli, who I caught up with at the Fenner conference last year with some fairly, fairly serious words about the way we're using energy in our civilization and what we're going to do about it. And uh, listening to that, I just turned our CD player off that's not being used. So I've done my little bit for the planet. Uh, but we do have some big things coming up in the next month, the next two months on Fuzzy Logic. It's all very exciting. Really looking forward to it. We are going to be looking at, yes, consciousness. It's a really difficult topic, consciousness. How does that kilo or two of fat and blubber inside your skull generate this experience we call consciousness and a couple of weeks ago we had a column in the Canberra Times in Fairfax Media for our Ask Fuzzy and Professor Jeff Louis answered the question of why it is that a knock on the head can cause you to lose consciousness quite suddenly an interesting answer and in the current Scientific American there is an article, really interesting article about communicating with people who are in various states of unconsciousness like comas, vegetative state. There's a whole range of types of consciousness you can have uh, from being asleep and so on. And they're using functional MRI and other such devices to try to communicate with a person who seems otherwise to be unresponsive. It's fascinating stuff. So we've got Professor Jeff Louis, who is a friend of Fuzzy Logic and he's amazing PhD student uh, Fiona and we're going to be discussing consciousness that'll be a, a, dare I say it a heady fuzzy logic and if that's not enough 
We've got a friend of Fuzzy Logic who's been with us a few times and he's always a huge amount of fun, Dr. Charlie Lineweaver. Yes, he's coming back with my friend Dr. Jochen Brocks and he's also a fascinating character. He's looking for signatures of life in oil reserves, would you believe? The chemical signatures of life back in the deep past. And we are going to do the history of life on the planet. That's right. In 60 minutes or less, we're going to cover 3 billion odd years of Earth history and life. It's going to be a hang on for the ride type show. I'm really looking forward to that. And a slightly easier topic, but still pretty interesting and pretty important. When you become aware of pests, species, uh, weeds and such like around the place, everywhere you look, there's another one. And there's serrated tussocks, scotch thistle, rabbits, prickly pear, carp, you name it. Well, there's another one that I didn't know about. A very small snail, a small freshwater aquatic snail. I'm really looking forward to that. And we have a researcher, PhD student, who is going to be talking to us about that. And that's all coming up in July. Oh, and August. Actually, I'll tell you about August and the Science Week big event coming up. Future Cop will tell you all about that. I think I might break to a quick music track here. No idea what the song lyric means. A little green bag. It makes no sense at all. But anyway, I always like this one. Classic. I'm Fuzzy Logic.
I've got no idea what Little Green Bag means or what those lyrics are all about, but it's a pretty funky song. I remember that. I'm old enough to remember when that was a new song, and that dates me how sad that is. Well, we're coming to the end of uh, Fuzzy Logic today on 2XX. Don't forget, you can pick us up on air, online. We, we stream over the net through the 2XX website, and you can pick up our podcasts on Fuzzy Logic on 2XX.podbean.com. And in today's Ask Fuzzy in the Fairfax Media, yes, we hit the big topics. This one is, what have you stuck your finger in and dug out of the side of your head in the last day or so? A blob of earwax? <laughs> That's right, yes, we have been answering the question is, why do you have earwax? And it's not just to give you something to while away those idle moments. It's there to protect the lining of your ear and so on. So check that out in the Canberra Times for the printed version. And we also sometimes appear in The Age in the Sydney Morning Herald and on also online. And another interesting Ask a Fuzzy we have coming up next week. We have a, a oncologist, you know, one of those people who you go to see for cancer therapy. Dr. Damien Yip, and he has answered the question for us about what happens to your hair when you have chemotherapy. Pretty nasty stuff, makes your hair fall out, or can do, um, make, can make your hair go grey, perhaps that's what I asked him. So that will be in next week. And Dr. Jeff Louis, who I also mentioned a moment ago, before the music, he is coming back on Fuzzy. Well, I had a reader question, which is, why is it that dementia can cause death? So that's a pretty uh, a pretty nitty-gritty sort of one. Uh, how is it that can lead to fatal consequences? And uh, Dr. Louis will be answering a question on that particular one. Future Cop coming up. Is there a future in crime? We're going to put up the event on Eventbrite. That's during Science Week. We have a top-flight bunch of panellists who are going to join us. We have the head of uh, the chief scientist from the Australian Federal Police. The, uh, we have the deputy director from the Australian Institute of Criminology. We have a cybercrime expert. And returning to our panel from last year, we had the cyborgs panel. This year, we've got, again, Dr. Bruce McCabe, who's written his fantastic book, Skin Job. I recommend it. Check it out. Lots of fun and lots more happening here on Fuzzy Logic. Enjoy the rest of the weekend. Catch you later.